0: My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast with your host, Jason Hustare.
1: Hey, welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. So glad to have you with us this week. Of all the ways there are to discover a song, there are few more inviting and experiential than the sensation of driving down a desert highway and simply hearing something come over the radio. Uh, I don't remember exactly when it was in 2022, but I was on my way down to Tucson for a work event, and I was tuned into KCXI, Tucson Community Radio, which has a uh, We've even recorded an episode of the podcast at their location at their studio location at Hotel Congress. So it's a station podcast listeners here should be familiar with. But I was driving down and I heard this come over the airwaves Adrian Casada featuring Gabby Moreno. Quesada is best known as one half of the Black Pumas, his duo with singer songwriter Eric Burton. But his musical output is deeply varied. He's worked with Brownout, a Latin hard rock tinged group, Grupo Fantasma, Adrian Young, and many more. In 2022, he released his debut solo album, Boleros Psychedelicos, followed that same year by another collection, Jaguar Sound. He joined me both to discuss those as well as his history in music, and I had a fantastic time hanging out with Adrian. Before we get into our talk though, Aquarium Drunkard is powered by its patrons. Do you dig our podcast transmissions and Aquarium Drunkard's daily music coverage, all the stuff we create and curate for you to listen to? If your answer is yes and you want to help us keep making it, you can do so by heading over to Patreon today and pledging your support to keep the servers humming and ensure that Aquarium Drunkard is able to share music we dig with you for many more years to come. Alright, without further delay, let's get into it. My conversation with Adrian Casada here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I learned a lot in this chat and had a really great time connecting with him. I hope you enjoy. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
1: What are you? Uh, what have you been up to today? How How has your day been?
0: Today was a uh, a lot of little curveballs. It's I'm in Austin, Texas, and we uh, uh, are dropping to freezing temperatures, and which is like once we hit 32, Austin just freaks out and shuts down. So it was one of those like school's canceled end of the world <laughs> snowpocalypse you know so it was like a lot of running around and picking up my daughter and uh etc cetera, etc cetera. i meant to spend a day in the studio but it didn't quite work out like that
1: so wait, so is it snowing there
0: no it's not even that bad it's just we just freak out here you know because we did have a snowpocalypse a couple of years ago and uh now it's like 32 <laughs> degrees and and everybody freaks out so it's pandemonium
1: yeah so i'm here in phoenix arizona is where i live and then aquarium drunkard is based in la but between the three locations it's a lot of a lot of strange weather for sure it's been very it's been very cold here in arizona by our standards for sure oh wow okay similar similar to you all but yeah it's uh well i'm glad that you were able to deal with all the curveballs and be here with us today yeah man Uh, You mentioned that you planned on spending the day in the studio. Uh, Was that something where, on any given day, are you usually juggling a few projects? Or are you talking about just getting into the studio and fucking around and seeing what happens?
0: I'm usually juggling a few things. Today was a fucking around day. I was uh, definitely, I've been kind of sketching some new little ideas and demos and stuff. So I've uh, really been looking forward to not having... Too much on my agenda. Just coming in here, and and being creative, you know, and kind of messing around a lot more, which I, I don't. I haven't had time to do a lot lately. So just to kind of, to, days fly by when I'm in here, you know. Yeah. Just sketching and making new ideas.
1: Yeah, you've been, you've been insanely busy. I mean, obviously, people who know you from Black Pumas know that that has was a, a couple years of concentrated craziness in terms of winning awards and touring and 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 blowing up and playing you know for the president or whatever obviously that's that's one thing but when i started getting ready for this talk i was blown away going back i mean it's been you've been juggling multiple projects and pretty much busy making music all the time for a long time at this point right when did when did you start devoting yourself fully to music
0: Fully to music uh, might have been like 20 years ago. I think my my first yeah. band um, when I was, um, I guess I was still in college was called what well, was in a band called Grupo Fantasma. I was a big 10 piece Latin band. I spent 13 years in that band and then um, moved on. And from there, you know, that was you know, I mean, obviously, I was I was still um, hustling a lot of part time jobs and stuff like that. But you know, I was devoting my life to music and i knew that's what i wanted to do and that was my first taste of of uh knowing that this was a viable you know smart decision because my uh backup plan for my parents was i have an art degree so i was like you know imagine telling your parents you're gonna be a musician um in a family that's not really uh you know uh my parents were 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 more like working class and, and make it happen not exactly artists yeah so uh um, telling them I wanted to be a musician and then telling them my backup plan was my art degree. Yeah. You know, it didn't, didn't go over that well. So if this, I knew I had to do it, do it or, you know, go big or go home.
1: Yeah, that's funny. If this music thing doesn't work out, don't worry. I'll just transition into the arts. Always lucrative. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: And known for job security. I, you were, you've been a part of, you mentioned Grupo Phantasma. And obviously I've encountered a, a lot of music from, from that crew over the years, but I also I think maybe when I first got turned on to what you were up to was around the time of those Brownout records, um, those Sabbath covers that you did specifically, and I know you guys covered Public Enemy too. Uh, but those Sabbath records, those really rearranged my thoughts about what Black Sabbath was all about. You know, I've always liked Black Sabbath. I always dug those records, but hearing you guys approach those songs the way you did in a way that often retained the heaviness, but also sort of revealed the songwriting that those, those are really, really cool records. What kind of relationship coming up did you have with hard, hard rock like that?
0: Uh, You know, my, my first exposure to hard rock, I was more into, um, I was really into hip hop. I was definitely into rock and roll and like some hard rock it was funny because my exposure to uh Black Sabbath in particular was uh through I had a, a friend of mine who was really into Anthrax. Okay. And he would always he would always um turn me on to Anthrax and they had an EP where they covered uh Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. So in my head that was always an Anthrax song until I, I mean this is when I was like in 6th grade or something. And uh sure. <laughs> when I finally heard that song, I, I can't like shake the Anthrax version which is just ingrained in me, but uh no, I, I Definitely got into Sabbath, more like a little bit later in high school. I started to reconnect with um, a lot of kind of hard rock stuff when I started to play guitar. Because I, when I was little, I definitely listened to, you know, the obvious Metallica, uh, some Megadeth, and like, the, you know, um, what was contemporary at the time for me. But I didn't really... and then I, But then I got really into hip hop and I kind of stopped listening to rock. But then when I started to play guitar... It was like, you know, when Nirvana came out. So I started getting getting into guitar based music. And that was like the obvious thing that I was attracted to, you know, was was putting on a, you know, a big muff pedal and and getting into that. And then from there that opened the doors back into, you know, Black Sabbath. And then starting to really appreciate uh, you know, a lot of the bands that made the the kind of, you know, bomb the seventies bombastic rock and roll stuff as I was exploring guitar more you know that was kind of it so uh the black sabbath thing i was i mean by no means um the uh you know any sort of expert on black sabbath or anything like that but it was definitely a common thread we all liked and then when we did when we decided to do it as brownout it started out more as i mean we definitely it started from we were listening to black sabbath uh you know in a van on tour but it kind of started as a joke uh that um I don't know somebody just said Brown Sabbath when we were listening <laughs> to black Sabbath and we just thought that was hilarious. And then we went into this conversation on like how, you know, early on, I think they were really trying to show their kind of jazzier funkier side compared to what a lot of people, you know, imagine black Sabbath started out. Like they definitely, um, had the, you know, the role in, in rock and roll. And, uh, we started to have this talk about it on tour. We were like, man, they're actually like really funky. You know, if you, uh, really kind of break down the rhythms of what they're doing. And then we just talked about the idea of like, what if we just, you know, made these songs kind of funky, but kept the heavy guitars. and Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I mean, on one hand, I'm thinking about what you're saying about how, especially on the early Sabbath records, you do hear more uh, varied expression. There's kind of some ballads. I mean... I was just driving. I mean, obviously, you've got Planet Caravan, and mm-hmm. and it's it's fun to imagine a a, a world where like that's what Sabbath th- that's what defined their career, right? Instead of like mm-hmm. the hev- the heavy jammers, but yeah, yeah. But when you talk about uh, the 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 getting into hip hop as a at a younger age, it's crazy to me when I start to consider how much those hard rock rhythms were incorporated into hip-hop you know and so it's like kind of a feedback loop and you are in this interesting position of having sort of operated in similar fields you know what I mean
0: yeah absolutely I feel like everything most um you know most of my existence in music has been a feedback loop I feel like it happens a lot where all of a sudden I'm back to where I'm like wow that was from you know I heard uh, that yeah. hip hop, or I actually you know so I, I absolutely love that I think that's what's fascinating and and nowadays it's what's interesting to me now is like it's so much easier to be connected now um, to the internet but you think about back then um, you know pre-internet whenever things uh, cycles like that were happening whenever you know bands from the US were influencing influencing another band from another part of the world um, and then a band from the US would then go copy that and it just became this loop but I mean that was harder to do when you had to like buy a record yeah, on the other side of the world, you know, and now it's like somebody uploads a song and the whole world hears it in five minutes. So yeah, I I love that. i I've, I've been like, because when I went to art school, everything was so conceptual and, and I never had like an explanation for anything. I never had a concept back then, but as I'm getting older and the more I think about, uh, concepts in music and what i have to say and what i'm doing i've been thinking like about that connection that musical connection and just how i i feel like it's it shows how much more we have in common as people you know than you think i thought that's what i like about music is it has that that power without sounding too hokey about it you know it's like
1: no it shows
0: you um you know we can relate to each other you know even if it's even if music is just an example of how to do that
1: yeah, yeah, that's so funny. I I know I know exactly what you're talking about and another thing that that kind of I thought reading about your work and your life is similar to myself having grown up in Arizona. You know, the border sort of plays a role in your in your upbringing, you know, and and where you where you're from there in Laredo and One of the things that's always been so interesting to me is the the concept of the border, just the concept of it, which in recent years has become kind of like, I'm trying to find the right word for it, physicalized via the wall or whatever, you know, this, this dumb representation of an idea that's always been around. But at the same time, like just south of the border in Mexico, you'd have these border blaster stations that were basically bringing American music all over the world, you know, uh, certainly all over the country. So that whole idea of just like communication across boundaries is another thing that when I was going through your discography, it it's clear that that's like a big part of it for you, you know? But I wonder if, if, if we could maybe focus a little bit on, on where you grew up and, and what your relationship to Laredo is like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's um, you know, another thing as I reflect more um is is realizing the importance of that and how much it shaped everything I would do, you know, everything I would do as an artist uh musically and and uh and even just conceptually, you know, even when I was a visual artist and is is that dual existence, you know, growing up between two uh countries, two cultures, two languages and you know, uh, the other aspect of that is that I almost feel like I've never, I never felt fully comfortable anywhere. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't, I never, I grew up speaking Spanish. Spanish was actually my first language. But as I, when I hang out with friends from Mexico or friends from Spain or Puerto Rico or whatever, I realize how bad my Spanish actually is, <laughs> you know? And then I'm, t- there's times where I'm in the U S and people are like, where the hell are you from? What's that accent? Like where, you know, right. And part of that was also, uh, just never really quite fitting in anywhere and and i think to this day i still kind of feel like that where um kind of feel like an outsider in in just about everywhere but you know more looking at like the beautiful side of how how that is growing up is that i don't see a lot of uh differences between you know not just genres but i i i'm fully comfortable hearing spanish and english back and forth so i think musically I don't really think of like boxes like that. I just, to me, if, you know, I'm driving home and playing some music on my phone and I'll play a be jamming to Gumi for 20 minutes and then just put it on the black Sabbath or whatever it is, you know? And right. Like, right. And it's not like, Hey, we're today's, you know, taco Tuesday and we're just going to listen to Mexican music. It's like, I, I, that's my whole day is, is going back and forth between that. And that's a, that's a big part of just growing up like that. You know, I'm sure you, you know it in uh growing up there is like you uh just just all over you and you can't uh yeah i don't
1: know No i, I know i know what you mean it's it's you don't have to try for it to happen it just yeah, exactly, it's just yeah. it's just it just naturally does i heard yeah all all kinds of music you know and you would and you would hear country in you know whatever restaurant and then you'd hear you know Tejano stuff some places or you know Caridos or whatever yeah you just yeah it's and it's just what you come in contact with that's fascinating that you mentioned though that idea that you never really felt like perfectly at home in any one one place and I think that that probably does yeah like you say speak to the way your musical trajectory has been which is You don't seem content to just one. I mean, you're not trying to do just one thing. You really, you really are kind of like throwing your arms around a lot of different sounds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I get, you know, I have a little bit of musical ADD. I'm always juggling a bunch of different stuff, you know. But I I also like to challenge myself at this point to, uh, you know, I got to the point where I've, you know, have enough of a discography now where I, if I hear something where I'm like repeating myself, I'm like, man, I did that already on another album, like, trying to, uh, you know, get more into the craft of of challenging myself now to, um, you know, I said this in, in another interview, but there's an amazing visual artist from Austin named Deborah Roberts. And, you know, who's have, having quite the heyday, like the Obama zone, some of her work, and it's, it's she's a, a huge deal, an incredible artist. I was reading an interview with her, and she was saying that uh, when she was in art school, and she wanted to try a new technique, uh, her art one of her teachers told her "Well, make 20 of them then because yeah that's the only way you're going to really fully break through into like this new technique and I've been doing that a lot in the last year to really push myself and more on the you know technical kind of craft side of it is like pushing myself to sit down and not touch a guitar for a month or two and fully try to ride on analog synths or whatever it is because uh at this point um, there's a lot of muscle memory in what I do. And if I pick up a guitar and start playing the guitar, it's probably highly likely something I've already played before. So, Is- you know, at this point I'm I'm kind of there, but that, so it's a little bit of that too, you know, a little bit of uh but I also, you know, some days I wake up and want to make a hip hop album. And some days I wake up and, and want to make a soul album. I don't know. It's like, I, I also get inspired, inspired really quickly. And I'm lucky enough to have a, uh, my own studio where I can just like, you know, yeah, be here in twenty minutes and and be be working, and so that's also you know made it really convenient for me to express all these ideas.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because your latest Jaguar sound like it it almost sounds like you're like I want to make a hip hop record and I want to make a soul record. You just made the same record somehow. Um, something that I think is really cool about it is that it it feels lo- you can. The influences are layered, but it doesn't feel like some weird stacking game. It feels very organic, you know, and then kind of realizing that it, it it also reminded me in some ways of the work that you had done earlier in your career with somebody like Adrian Young, you know, who I've always been such a fan of the way he, at least the way I hear it, right, has poured it over so many hip hop. Um, uh, He's he's poured it over so many different musical ideas into a hip hop context you know or or taking a hip-hop uh approach outside of hip-hop in so many different ways i feel like that's similar to you right i mean but does it feel still obviously the guitar is a big touchstone for you and you've got that muscle memory but do you also feel like your work is sort of just rooted in hip-hop to some yeah, degree there's
0: a lot of er, for sure absolutely there that's that was such a like the formative years of my listening experience that i i hear everything through that filter Abs- absolutely man like uh, that's how i discovered soul music funk music um jazz music was all all through hip-hop you know the only thing i didn't discover through hip-hop was rock stuff that i was playing on guitar but so i mean every little there there's so many things i mean i can go on forever i mean the doy drum sound yeah you know i'm from that era of the, of the uh not the trap beats, but the like you know the drum samples and the and the chopping on an MPC two thousand or an SP twelve hundred and the the, the sound that those machines what what that was doing to drums that's how I, that's what the benchmark for me of how I want to hear drums, is I always wanted to sound, make my head do what a hip hop song does so that's right. always for sure it always starts at the drums and then, there are so many things that I I think about a lot with with hip hop production so many accidents that happen with a loop i mean and not all of it was accidents a lot of it was on purpose but there are a lot of accidents that happened with you know if you took a two bar loop like if a string part was about to happen at the end of it but it cuts it off or like a vocal part that was chopped from the last bar and that just you hear like a glimpse of it like i hear those things all the time and I, the way i play guitar is almost kind of has that repetition of I like everything to feel like that. Yeah, I can't. I can't. That's just something that's in me. There's that. That's not something I try to do even, or I'm not even conscious of it anymore. Right. You know, it just absolutely, absolutely is was the biggest influence in in everything.
1: And and you've worked with somebody like you worked with Money Mark, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Did a, did a few tracks with him for sure. Yeah
1: so you get that like sort of i i i i absolutely like what you're saying i can hear precisely what you're talking about and i and i think that that like is a thread that runs through your work even when the stylistic stuff shifts around that but i was thinking about how one of my favorite moments in like music history is when when Paul's boutique kinda like wipes out on release and the it kinda ruins the Beastie Boys as a <laughs> as a financial enterprise at least, right? And so they gotta retreat to their studio and they're playing their own instruments and they're generating their own drums and bass and stuff. But then still treating them like samples, sampling themselves, learning how to manipulate the sound that next level and when i was thinking about how with brownout you guys also had done public enemy i think about that the collage effect of that production and how it's just baked into the stuff and enhances the the feel in ways that are just really it's it's crazy now that there are drummers who came up learning how to drum to those <laughs> fucked up bad yeah. like bad loops you know bad loops for i'm sure. using i'm using mm-hmm, air quotes mm-hmm. for the uh, listeners benefit that's fascinating yeah. to think about
0: oh absolutely um yeah there it's influence i mean it's not just me you know i'm no i'm no like anomaly here in that i was talking to somebody else about the other day about like popular music just pop you know the poppiest of i mean not everything but like a lot of popular music, top 10 big, huge hits are, uh, you know, kids like me or the generations past me who we have are now far removed from like the original source, but have heard it so many, um, it's been handed down through generations where like everything is, is now inf- largely, a lot of music is largely influenced by hip hop, the compression on drum, the way drums sound, the way that things, um, are are produced and and mixed and recorded a lot of it was. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that's, that's not definitely, definitely not unique to me, but I I do think it's influenced the whole generation. I, mean, the most by easily, I'm not even, this is not hyperbole, like the most influential genre of our lifetime, you know, what hip hop was no doubt.
1: 100%. It changed, Mm -hmm. changed everything, informed Mm -hmm. everything in, in ways that we can barely wrap our heads around is, I've, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of older stuff lately uh, mm-hmm. for various stuff, and I'm always blown away by the the psychedelic quality. But it's not psychedelic the same way. It's not like you know doing a the the same West Coast psych tricks. But it's psychedelic in this whole different way. You know, sample sample yeah. music. I think about that Avalanche's record. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and and how it ends up creating a whole world. And so your stuff, I love that there's an element of that. That that um that orchestrated production style carries carries over i mean do you remember some of the first producers who you like were you a liner notes guy like kind of scouring liner notes and trying to put two and two together who were like producers whose names meant something to you early on
0: when i started to pay attention to to liner notes and things like that it was um It was like on public enemy albums it was like the bomb squad it was uh you know tribe called quest albums it was uh i remember the first time i sat down and tried on a keyboard to do something to recreate a hip-hop song i had this little keyboard that had a drum machine and stuff and it was a and that was when i first kind of started figuring out who dr dre was and yeah that that little high-pitched synth was something dr dre did and trying to do it on my keyboard it was it was largely hip hop producers that that were the first ones I paid attention to. I definitely remember also, um, you know, again when I was really into getting into guitar, uh, you know, remember when seeing reading Butch Vig's name on on Nirvana and then reading uh, uh, Steve Albini's name, like the names like that. But I but it was definitely mostly the the hip hop producers and and you know I uh, just saw this thing on I can't remember what it was I apple or hulu whatever but it was like a mark ronson series i don't know if you've seen those and each one focuses (laughs) on like one aspect of production like one will be on auto tune, one's on reverb one's on one's on sampling which is fascinating but um the uh bomb squad were talking about public their first productions for public enemy and you know how chaotic all of that was they were saying that the kind of the nucleus of that was they were at a park like you know at the parks in new york when the hip-hop jams were happening where people would plug into the light posts and djs would play and he was saying that one of the shockley bros was saying that they there was um a handful of like djs at at this park that would set up and be like on opposite ends of it and they'd be both having parties simultaneously sometimes three and they were like (laughs) and you would stand in the middle and hear Three different parties happening and they were like (laughs) we were trying to recreate that like he was like a little bit of what was happening on that side was cool with the drums a little bit was happening over here and it was kind of chaotic and crazy but sometimes it had moments where it really lined up and they were talking about that i was like kind of blew my mind Where i'm like that's it that makes sense again that's their environment and influencing them right you know that's how back to we were talking about laredo like you know i walk in somewhere you know speaking English and I leave speaking Spanish and that's right that's my, my environment that I just can't shake and you know but yeah, that hearing them talk about that I thought was fascinating
1: that's absolutely fascinating and I mean yeah you can hear it there's a spatial a spatial sense to what they're doing and mm-hmm. they're playing with contrast and clash and dissonance yeah I, I I've been spending a bunch of time listening to um to it takes a nation of millions and mm-hmm. and just sort of being like blown away by how abrasively they're playing with texture and it's just, it's, it's, it's mind blowing, you know? And, and so when you think about how that influenced a whole generation of producers and people like yourself who are able to apply those, those techniques to music, I mean, in your case, everything from, you know, blues, bluesy garage, Rocky R and B kind of stuff to, obviously the group of phantasma stuff and and brownout brownout and then now your solo stuff it's it's nuts it's it, that's such a that's such a fascinating thing to to think about
0: thank you and you know when we did the brownout uh, public enemy thing we were approached by fat beats this uh pretty historic hip hop label yeah they had a series where they were doing that um a lot a bunch of people were doing tributes like that to hip hop uh groups or producers and they they approached us actually about doing the public enemy we realized quickly that Again, with that Bomb Squad, like Public Enemy production, a lot of that stuff is just not in the same key, way out of tune So, but and it doesn't always translate to live instruments. So when we were trying to like kind of wrap our head around this Public Enemy thing, we tried to mimic that. And we actually eventually would back up um, Jiza from Wu-Tang Clan for a bit and we were learning some of his songs. And again, those samples on record sound amazing and kind of dissonant and amazing. But when you actually try to recreate it like that live, it just doesn't really work so with the brownout public enemy thing we had to adjust things live and kind of approached it more like uh what if the bomb squad had uh the the you know cool in the gang or the jbs the people they were sampling in the studio right and we made it more of a live thing with with um a little bit of the chaos but but not so much forcing things on top of each other that didn't work. We tried to make it more like a live, like if they had had that band in the studio, you know, in the seventies, what would that have been like? But yeah, that that was another thing we learned was the genius of that. It just works. But with, you know, when we were playing with Jizz and we were trying to learn those RZA beats, it just, we were like playing, playing it, you know, verbatim, like the album, we were like, that sounds terrible. It (laughs) Just, just, yeah. For whatever reason it doesn't work. Yeah. But it works on those records.
1: It's just, yeah, it's just not the same thing, right? Like a record and a, and a, and a live thing as somebody who has spent a lot of time on the stage, a lot of time in live formats, but now also a lot of time in the recording studio being that mm-hmm. si- on that side. I mean, was that ever a hangup for you? That idea that like, we can't do this, uh, in the studio if we're not going to be able to do it live. Was that ever a part of the lexicon for you?
0: um not necessarily but i i generally like to make things that you can recreate live i've never personally we i've been a little bit on stage where where we've used tracks for stuff you know here and there but and i think people do that really well that's an art form in itself i personally like to hear Um, live organic instruments you know and by organic i don't doesn't mean like has to be vintage i just sure i just like to hear like a living breathing band on stage actually playing that's my my personal taste and so i I think a lot of times when making a record we just always just adapted it to the stage you know if something has to change it has to change I, i don't think there's anything wrong with making a live version and i actually as a fan of music, I kind of think that's exciting. You know, like when you see, when you hear a song on a record and then you go see a band, play it live, there's, you know, there's definitely a time and a place where I'm like, that sounds exactly like the record, awesome. And then there's a time where you're like, they play a whole different version and it's almost more exciting. You have two different uh, approaches to that. And, you know, then it makes going back and listening to the album more exciting, you know, so.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm...
0: Yeah, I don't mind the separation.
1: For sure. I know, I know what you mean. I remember seeing Steely Dan... I saw Steely Dan a handful of times and it always sounded so much like the record. I was like yeah. blown away. Um, and I, I appreciated that. But then you see Neil Young or whoever, and it's like, mm-hmm. he's just tearing into a different, I love, I I've always been one of the, I think Mary the very first podcast that we did for Aquarium Drunker that I was involved in was we talked with Will Oldham mm-hmm. from Bonnie Prince Billy. And he's known for putting, different versions of the same song on record after record. And I asked him about that sort of being, I don't know, not, not trying to like gotcha him or anything, but I was like, you keep using the same songs. What's up, you know, or whatever. And he was like, no, it's like, that's the cool thing about a song is you can just do it. However many times, however many ways, and it's always going to be its own thing. And so it sounds like for you, that's a big part of it live is to like, just let it, let it have a little breathing room.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I didn't know he did that. That's kind of cool. I gotta go back and and check it out. Uh, yeah, actually, he'll, for, like, he'll for, change um,
1: lyrics sometimes. It's kind of Dylan esque, right? Where it's like the yeah, yeah, ever evolving. No, cool.
0: Yeah, you know, they're they're used to that. Used to be, you know, if you look back at. um uh, you know jazz music or even you know to a certain extent just a lot of the music in the 60s and 70s people would cover a song like over there's a hundred you know versions of certain songs and i'm as a fan like i said i love going back and discovering and if some of them sucked and and at the same time yeah there were bands that re-recorded song. We i did that on my uh boletos sequel delicos album we re-recorded uh a song called The Yama," which i had recorded before in another project kind of as a nod because the band that that recorded that original version um a band from peru called los Pastelos verdes they they had actually recorded that song because that was their hit ah. they recorded it like five like five times
1: oh and yeah there's
0: like a, a ver like two awesome versions and then it gets kind of into the 80s and it starts to get a little 80s out but i just thought that was kind of funny i'm like well they recorded it five times why don't i record it again and i may do it one more time why not you know but like i love that stuff it's, it's everything it's fun to have a sense of humor about it too and not be so like precious
1: Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads. And as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with, and uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers, and of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Well, for sure, and I think that's something that's missing from a lot of the conversation that we have now about music is, is a sense of like playfulness and humor. But to your point, yeah, like there would be covers of songs that were current hits being ch- like churned out by artists. It's like, it'd be like if, you know, whatever yeah it's like covering a, a current rihanna song right now or whatever mm-hmm. you know which which people do or whatever yeah. but but i love that i remember there was this you know that os mutantes song baby mm-hmm. i remember i don't remember what the context was but i heard it one night i think in a bar and uh i was like who is this and he's like os mutantes and i was like the song and he's like baby and I was like okay I'm not gonna forget this and then I went and got you know every record I could find by Os mutantes that had baby on it and I'd listen to them and I loved each version but I was like none of these are that one version I heard what did I hear you know yeah eventually I figured out it was from like the, the U.S. album or whatever like in the mm-hmm. years later or whatever but it's so funny to think that yeah that's that is a huge part of what makes this stuff fun the elastic nature of a of a song you know
0: absolutely man i love that uh that's that's (laughs) that's just exciting as a as a music fan you know when you can keep discovering another version that's that's awesome i think that's that's an amazing
1: you you've worked with a lot of really cool people on your records uh you know i i wanted to ask specifically about mark rabot as a guitarist yourself uh when did you first get aware become aware of his work
0: uh, when I was in college, I got I I went into I got really into jazz when I got into college and and uh, my first band before Grupo, which Grupo Fantasma sort of evolved out of a, a co- two different bands. And I was in a band called Blue Noise Band. It was sort of like punk rock jazz. Like we didn't really... One guy sort of really knew jazz and the rest of us just liked jazz. And we were like, just play loud and fast and just try it. And what, so what, it was very much that.
1: What kind of I'm jazz? Sorry. What kind of jazz? Like just for a it frame of like, reference. It was like
0: we were... Re- at that time we uh i was uh, the the sax player who um was in the band i had just met him when i was in college he was from new york so he he was really him and the bass player were really hip to like a lot of the so-called downtown like new york avant-garde jazz so at the time you know the obvious ones were like mark Ribot, uh uh john zorn and a lot of the experiments that were happening in downtown new york so it was really avant-garde with them kind of having this punk rock irreverent approach to jazz so when i discovered them that just blew my head open because i'm like oh that's that's it like you know uh, i mean i definitely had much so much respect for jazz i just couldn't i didn't i hadn't learned it so i just couldn't play it correctly and (laughs) i really loved that these dudes were rocking out and like having a sense of humor and having respect for it but also just blowing the doors open and, and doing whatever they wanted so mark was kind of a early hero of mine because he was somebody that was doing that and then when he um he had a project called uh, Los Cubanos Postizos which was the the prosthetic cubans and it was his take on it for the first album was covers of this uh cuban composer named uh, Arsenio Rodriguez and that band was awesome man i saw them on this tv show once and then like went ch- check out the album and i heard this interview with him and he was kind of saying the same thing about you know being in new york you kind of just hear he heard cuban music everywhere so it was kind of a little bit ingrained in him and it was his take on that so i and that was the they're like the rhythm section was a real true like amazing latin rhythm section but he was just out there you know it's it was just post tom like some of his tom Waits stuff so it still kind of sounded like that janky tom Waits stuff but he was playing these real deal um cuban rhythms and i learned a lot that was kind of one of my introductions into going back and studying latin music so i just always loved his take on on things so when i was doing this boleto's album i you know was just always looking for collaborators on it and i, I and he just hadn't crossed my mind and i have a mutual friend with him and and steve berlin um from those lobos who's a good friend of mine and you know he would always talk about him and i was like would try not to geek out about like you know mark tell me more mark rubel stories but <laughs> He was, like, really good friends with him, and one day I just, I came up on my YouTube feed, just, like, randomly a a video of him playing, and I was just like, oh, man, I gotta gotta try for that, like, who knows, and reached out via Steve, and uh, out of nowhere, like, one day a week later, I just got a call from him, and we talked for, like, three minutes, and he was all about it, and I got a guitar track a week later, so I never actually went into the studio with him, it was still kind of in the pandemic, yeah, yeah, so.
1: Well hopefully you'll be able to at some point. I hear he's I hear he's intense in person. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do I.
1: That's cool. That's cool. We've had we had Steve Berlin on this podcast and he oh, nice. he's such a fun dude to talk to. Absolute um wealth of knowledge, really generous of spirit. It was a really cool conversation. Los Lobos are one of those bands where Call me crazy, but outside of like the record nerd sort of community, I don't feel like they get their due to the degree that they that they should. Uh, and I, I try not to trot that like argument out about too many bands, you know, because if you start getting into the who's underrated or not, you know, properly valued, it can get weird. But I really do think Los Lobos are kind of one of those bands where... When you really look back at what they accomplished and the degree of artistry that they've maintained, it's pretty, it's really something special. When did you first encounter that crew?
0: Um, personally, met them via Steve Berlin. You know, I remember being a kid and I remember La Bamba for sure and, and always kind of course. kept up with them. And, uh, you know, my real, some of my real like heavy music nerd head friends um i remember when they um turned me on to the kiko album but i I connected with steve when with uh there when i was still in Grupo Fantasma. i had produced two albums for them and then we uh the last one i worked on with the band i actually remember talking to the guys it's like we need to get an outside producer you know it's too hard for somebody in the band to produce it that much especially with that many people in the band it was a 10-piece band uh so I don't remember how I found Steve or how I like connected with him through who, but, uh, we've just become good friends. He's kind of a mentor of mine, his experience and, um, in the music industry. And he's such a just level-headed, awesome, you know, musical genius that I, you know, I see him and talk to him fairly often and always just enjoy catching up with him. But yeah, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine today, this, uh, at lunch today, cause it's like this party trick that a friend of mine always does where he's like, name, a Top 10 uh, rock and roll bands of all time. And then he's like, but no British bands. Because right away, your brain wants to name like, you know, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, whatever, a bunch of British bands. But if you actually make make somebody think of on the spot, ten, the best 10 American rock and roll bands of all time, it takes you a second. And we, I was just telling a friend of mine, like, I feel like Lobos are in that conversation. I mean, they've, they've covered so many genres that you can argue... They're this, that, or the other because they're, you know, adept in in a lot of traditional folkloric Mexican music, um, you know, done a a little bit of everything. But if you just look at the classic American rock and roll bands, like, they're absolutely one of the all-time great American rock and roll bands and continue, have evolved forever.
1: Exactly. Continuous, continually in operation, you know. There's however many years between the records sometimes, but there's always more records. yeah. I remember, like obviously, knowing the Labamba soundtrack, which is a, a a touchstone. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's a touchstone for everybody everywhere. I know for for me in the Southwest, and I, I mean, it sounds similar to you. It was definitely yeah. a big touchstone here. Um, but then, and then, I would kind of encounter like stuff. I remember seeing like how will the wolf survive, like in in the. Record bins or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I was like working at a record store when just I don't even remember which record it was. I can remember the album cover, but it was like 2006 or something. This record had come in like the promo of their new album, and somebody put it on, and I just remember being like, "This is like a this is a brand new record." Like, what do you? My mind was kind of blown because I was getting into nick Lowe and Ry cooter yeah, yeah, yeah. and all this cool stuff that i w- was having my head exploded by that and to hear these guys who were in that conversation to the degree you're talking about just great songs incredible vibe yeah los lobos maybe maybe it's a top 10 maybe they're a top 10 american rock band
0: mm-hmm. for sure <laughs>
1: Well, another big icon that you did have an interaction with was was Prince, uh, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about about that because I actually I saw that you had crossed paths with them, but then I was like, I'm not going to get to I don't want to figure out what happened because I would like to hear it from you. But you, uh, wh- 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 how did how did you first cross paths with Prince?
0: Uh, when when I was in Grupo Fantasma, we we had a, a manager who knew somebody that. Worked with Prince and Prince at the time had a residency in Las Vegas at the Rio Hotel. And it was, it was when, uh, I think it was right when the 3121 album came out because the, the club he had a residency there it was called 3121. So he played every Friday and Saturday and he curated the rest of the week or he curated like Wednesday through, uh, so Wednesday, Thursday, and then I think Sundays or something like that. And, uh, we knew that he had a guy and then Thursday he had, uh, Latin night and our manager was like oh i talked to my friend who works with him and um sent him a a cd and we were like that's cool i mean if that if that had been everything that had happened my connection with prince is knowing that prince had an album (laughs) of mine would have been a big deal but then it was like we got a call like prince is listening to your album tomorrow at noon (laughs) i remember they were like really specific with like tomorrow you got to be thinking about this we were like wow that's wild that still would have been the craziest thing ever and then we got a call he liked it and then it was like we got another one that was um uh the 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 house band he had a house band on Thursdays at late night and they would they didn't want to play thanksgiving so it was like the band doesn't want to play he he's asking if you guys want to cover thanksgiving so we we're like hell yeah so we flew up to Las Vegas played thanksgiving at 3121 and nobody was there
1: <laughs> and
0: but he he was there and we waited for him after the show and d- he didn't come talk to us. So by the time we got home on Friday, which again, that would, if the story ended there, that I'd still be talking about that, but we got home and we got a call that he fired the other band, and he made us the house man kind of without asking us, he was there. He was like, you're the new house man. So we became the house man on Thursday. So I started flying up every Thursday and we'd play with Prince. And then from there, he checked us out quite a few times. And then he just started inviting us to, um, random other gigs and then all of a sudden next thing you know we're at the o2 arena opening for that run you know in london and doing like one-offs here and there we did a you know quite a handful of things with him
1: mind-blowing mind-blowing and is he is he as like mystic and mythic in person in your interactions with him
0: definitely pretty mystic and in his uh just the way that he kind of carries himself and but i will say that the thing that people don't talk about as much as how uh absolutely hilarious he was like he was really funny and particularly with us i think he really um wanted to charm us you know we were like this young these young kids that he took under his wing and he would be really he was really funny with us he was like joking around a lot more than you think you know but he always set the tone so it was like he'd be joking and joking and then all of a sudden he would stop joking and you just pick up on that okay like no more smiling let's get to work and yeah uh but yeah he was as mysterious as you think just also equally as as funny and and um uh like self-deprecating he was funny he was funny as hell he was really uh liked to make people laugh and he you know it, it was was sometimes it was at his own expense and stuff he was he was really funny
1: that's that's really cool that's not Yeah, that's not the first thing that comes to mind is Mm -hmm. self-deprecation, but that's fantastic. And, I mean, he's such an interesting guy. I mean, I have to imagine that that... Would you go as far as to say that, like, interactions with him are among the most kind of, like, well, I can't believe this is happening moments for you in your life? Have have there been others that come close to that?
0: Not not as... That's been probably some of the craziest musical... Um, stuff I've ever experienced. And not to mention, you know, we were a young, a newish band, and uh, hadn't had that much experience on those stages. And he put a lot of faith in us, but also was really patient with um wanted to te- wanted to make sure that we learned, you know uh, from from the experience. So he was always very you know because i saw him with his band and i think he expected a lot out of his band because you know they're on salary they're pro ass like yeah the flyest musicians in the world and and he he helped them to a super high standard he held us to a high standard but he was also willing to teach us and you know what we didn't know so that was whenever i reflect on that i'm like man i just can't, I can't even believe that that even happened like it's it was it's such a such a uh magical time of my life that it's just insane to even think about
1: yeah wow that is that's that's nuts i we um you know as as we're getting near to wrap up i wanted to mention that we had hermanos uh, gutierrez on the show too yeah yeah Uh, recorded a talk with them uh and it was so funny because we were just talking about various things and they, and they brought you up and I was like, Oh, that's so cool. You know, he's going to be on the podcast too. And, uh, they said to say hello, but I wondered if, uh, if you could talk a little bit about what you thought when you came across, came across those guys, I'm, pr- I'm pretty new to their records. I only kind of started hearing stuff, uh, following this most recent, um, the most recent one on, uh, easy, easy. Eye yeah. Sound. yeah. Easy yeah. Eye, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. No, they're my boys. Um, yeah, again, the universe just works kind of funny. I had a friend that told me about them early in the pandemic, and I remember checking them out and was like, "Man, this is." And it's funny because they sound like the American Southwest, you know, but they're they're uh, from you know various parts of the world. But I was like, "Man, this is." I love the how much space and just anything, you know. When when I feel like there's been this resurgence in people really list embracing instrumental music you know, and some of the I mean, the obvious ones is, I mean, I saw on their tour, I, you know, played with them in Austin and that, you know, they just sold out this whole last tour that they did. And, you know, it's two guys on stage with no vocals. And, you know, another, obviously like massive example is like Krung Bin, you know, obviously now they have some vocals, but pretty much largely instrumental. And I, I think it's amazing as somebody who's not a vocalist or a singer and, and has always really appreciated instrumental music, how, to see people finally embracing it. So, I mean, I couldn't, I saw them uh, just playing Austin and got to sit in on a couple of songs. And man, just seeing how they have a whole room in the palm of their hands and it's just two guys with guitars and like a little bit of reverb or a lot of reverb in certain yeah. cases. But, <laughs> no, it's just, they just felt like, uh, you know, they they joked there the hermanos, I'm primo, I'm the cousin. Like, we're just like long lost cousins. <laughs> as soon as we connected in real life, I had a, uh, uh, yeah, a friend of mine told me about them during the pandemic and started listening a little bit. And then I remember I think we maybe I messaged a few times with them on Instagram. But I was in LA and just walked in somewhere, turned around, and I saw one of the brothers. And we just looked at each other. We're like, "This is crazy!" Of all, like all over the world, we just ran into each other in LA. And from there, we just kind of stayed in touch. And yeah, I just they, they just feel like my long lost cousins, man. We just ha- we just have a blast and um, yeah, just good guys, good guys. I couldn't couldn't be happier for them.
1: When you sat in with them, you were you were on guitar too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems to be. I I I'm curious. You know what's going to happen as they get to invite various other people to sit in. You know, you and Dan Arbach and who knows who else could add something to that? Because you're right. It's a very. They have a very cool thing going on. Very cool vibe.
0: It's very unique. It's their. Um, they have uh, like this very self-taught, unique way of playing. And understanding the guitar that I think makes it even more special because they're it's not uh or it's pure. It's like it's it's really coming from from what they're what they're hearing in their head straight to their hands. And yeah, I think Dan had just played with them maybe the week before I did, and I, I was the second person to ever play with else. <sighs> be on stage with them so yeah
1: that's yeah that's 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 wild and you're right it does sound like the southwest but from this different angle which adds an, an another element to it um but yeah that's as somebody who i really do that i love the desert and i love the space the space afforded by the desert and the sort of mm-hmm. the openness and when music can uh, approximate that, whether there's vocals or not, I'm always, I'm always curious to hear that. And your stuff definitely does that. Um, thank you so much for hanging out dude and talking about all this stuff. It's been an absolute blast,
0: man. I had a blast. Thank you. I'm mean, looking at those records behind you. I feel like we could pull one out and talk for another hour, you know, but dude, yeah, had a good time.
1: We, we definitely could Adrian. Thank you so much for doing it. And we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks
0: for having me.
1: Big thanks to Adrian for taking time to appear here on transmissions. And of course, thank you so much for tuning in you are more than just a listener you are an integral part of the show if you want to get in touch with me you can head over to aquarium drunkard right now and check out the contact list there you'll find my email and you can drop me a line with whatever is on your mind i am jason p woodbury i produce write, and host the show transmissions is edited by andrew horton our music comes from Frank Maston, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. You can find more of it by visiting Maston.bandcamp.com. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his essential radio show, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35. It airs at 7 p.m. every Wednesday night. 7 p.m. Pacific, every Wednesday night. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse podcast network. You can visit TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. We will be back next Wednesday with another all-new episode of Transmissions. I will be joined by Eddie Chacone, who joins me to discuss his wild career in music and his oracular synthetic soul music. All right, be well. Until then, this transmission is concluded.